Many newspapers have called it the greatest club game ever. The strength of Munster rugby has always been the big boys up front. I'm actually really, really excited for it. The Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neil Briggs. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. The Koi Gig Pod and OTB Sports in association with Cadbury. A player and a half deserves a glass and a half of support. Everyone ran their socks off tonight and they left everything out there. They're very proud of the, the team's performance. Let the shackles off Katie a bit so that she can go and play her game. We're going to go out there to beat them. We're going to try and beat them. Hello there and welcome to episode 7 of the Koi Gig Pod, OTB's home of the Women's Super League, Irish football and everything in between. I'm Kathleen McNamee and with me as ever is former Ireland international and Piedmont United's Karen Duggan. Karen, how are we doing this week? Good, back to WSL action, so plenty to talk about this week. Plenty to talk about this week, very exciting weekend to after the international break. Um, the Coigan Pod and OTB Sports is in association with Cabri FC, official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. Later on, Emma will be along with the much-awaited return of the WSL Team of the Week, and I'll be having a chat with Republic of Ireland manager Vera Pau. Um, Karen, you never played under Pau, obviously, but thoughts on her... I suppose, progress with the team so far? Yeah, I don't know. I think I've been on the fence um, for a lot of her tenure. Um, Obviously, they went through that high of kind of starting the Euro campaign and then it it dwindled out. And then that was followed by a lot of losses um, in friendlies against higher ranked opposition. And she spoke about how that was for the development of the team. And we thought we kind of turned a corner then when we beat Australia and obviously the great Finland result like that was that was what I thought would be a turning point. And then we reverted back to our old ways against Slovakia. Um, we didn't have a plan B. I don't think we utilized our players in their best position for that game. I don't think the formation was right. And she kind of was nearly afraid to change it because the Finland result was right. But I think the measure of a good manager is really knowing the right team and the right formation for um, the opposition. And so it's hard, like, I mean, there's been good results and there's been very questionable results. So it's been a mixed bag for me um, and I'm still struggling to see the, the evidence of all this progress um, apart from that Finland game. I hope I'm proved wrong, obviously, in the second half of the campaign. Um, you know, the girls, are, the girls seem to have bought into what she's bringing to the table and they're very positive in their interviews. But I just am yet to be... 100% I'm sitting on the fence in, yeah. in my thoughts with Pau obviously having not played with her I'm hearing things secondhand as well and stuff like that so you, you, all you can go on is results and you'd have to say that they're a mixed bag yeah well I'm looking forward to putting all of that to her later on when I speak to her um, but back to the Women's Super League obviously we've had a bit of a break we did have some fun in between with the FA Cup final and Champions League and stuff but I'm going to ask you what stood out, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to know what the answer is. (laughs) I think everyone knows what stood out. The really unexpected um, Reading 1-0 win. Um, I don't think any of us saw that coming. I know that Emma Hayes, um, she made a few changes, and and, but that was reflective of what we thought the golf in the teams would be. We still thought that the strength and depth that Chelsea had, but rest in Kirby, rest in Wrighton. And Kelly Chambers got their tactics right. She knew they'd be on the counter-attack um, and that proved the case. And they, they only needed it to work once and they defended so resolutely. She could be really, really proud of her players. Um, it was a dogged performance. They really had to dig in because Chelsea still had enough quality on the pitch and enough possession and probably enough chances to, to take one, if not three points. Um, but a really, really good result for Reading. 
Yeah, it was interesting because this is one of the ones that I watched back. I didn't watch it live and I wasn't looking at my phone for like a couple of hours while the match was on and I turned my I turned it back to my phone and I was like, what's happening? <laughs> Just reams of messages from people being like, what's going on? I think it's interesting because Emma Hayes talked about this a little bit because obviously they played the FA Cup, then they had, that was a Sunday, they had the midweek match against... Um, in the Champions League and then they went yeah and then they went straight into this now arguably you would say against a team like Reading and considering how little Arsenal showed up in the first game there wasn't that much for them to be worried about but I was kind of almost waiting for her to come out again and give off about the timing but you would also think that with the squad she has and the thing we always talk about with Chelsea as well is depth that they would have been able as you said to just like pull through but do you think it's a case that maybe she just didn't think through her tactics or she didn't think through her she didn't have the team set up and I suppose that airtight way that we have come to expect from Chelsea possibly they're a bit naive in thinking that they could just replace players bring them in their fresh legs they still have the quality um but I think it's it's hard on the players as well yes maybe all these players didn't play in those big games but they were part of the environment where you're really gearing up for these big high profile games and then you're coming back down to earth and you're you're playing Reading a team that you should be beating Reading away you're probably not looking forward to that trip too much after what has been such um highs maybe during the week and and that that psychological kind of message would have filtered through the whole panel it wouldn't have just been the starting team um so I, I think it, it's harsh on them. They have had a really busy schedule, but that doesn't take away from Reading. Great performance. You expect more from Chelsea. And I think Emma Hayes took responsibility for that. She recognised that she had the strength. She made those changes. And yeah, maybe they didn't set up or maybe they weren't as prepared. Maybe they focused too much on the other two games that we mentioned. Mm. And to look as well as to the other games as well, one of the ones that really stuck out to me was Man City and Birmingham. They were so close. They were. They so really close. were. Yeah, it's, it's the times that they conceded. Um, again, killed them, and and the way they conceded them. If they'd gone into halftime two one up, you might have said, right, they can really regroup here. They can bank up and really frustrate City. But you kind of felt when City got that second equaliser going into the second half that City would go on and beat them well. But it wasn't the case, and and they did. They were so resolute again, and they they. They threatened from set pieces, you'd have to say. Um, they put themselves about, but to concede in the 89th minute after that effort, it is, it's heartbreaking. And it's it's just a measure of how their season has been going. They, they can't catch a break no matter how hard they're trying. And yeah, even though City were under strength due to COVID and things like that, they're still Man City. And they kind of just probably had that air of just arrogance that they were going to go out in the second half and win and they kept going to the 89 minutes they kept having that belief that they were going to do it and of course it was their their talisman uh Ellen White who who popped up with that all-important winner for them yeah it was hard I saw some of Louise Quinn's posts about it I think she waited until today maybe to put anything up but you could just feel the pain over what they were saying it was I think when Birmingham took the lead it like coincided exactly with the Verstappen Hamilton like big <laughs> yeah. ending and I was on Twitter and everyone was like capitals like what is happening and I was like well, a lot of people are suddenly very interested <laughs> yeah. in the Man City Birmingham game this so, one was slightly less controversial now than yeah, that one, yeah I think yeah. <laughs> Everyone, not being the F1 aficionado that a lot of other people are, everyone was very bemused by my being like, everyone's <laughs> watching the WSL as well, this is great. No, I um, think I'm a bandwagon F1 person as well, I have to say, <laughs> I was switched on to that. Yeah, I think it would be hard not to be after that weekend, but 
I think as well, the thing with City, what we saw this week was, again, the team being ravaged by situations that were slightly out of their control. Obviously, there was like a COVID result for Janine Becky, some close contacts, injuries again, defensive crisis again. It just seems like a circle that they can't really get out of at the moment. Um, although some would argue that there is also faults to be laid at the feet of the players who have actually been there. I like, you think of last season, Man City, Birmingham, you would have thought that's a clear result. There's Walk no the question yeah. what way it would go. Yeah, you would have thought so. And, and even given all of that, you still think that they have the strength in comparison to Birmingham. Now, they're mm. obviously, like I said, they are under strength, but like compared to what Birmingham's resources are and what Man City's resources are, they're poles apart. And you could ten, tell from their manager that the overriding feeling at the end of that game was just relief. He just wanted to get through that game because you, you drew, drop points to Birmingham at this point, a lot of questions start to be asked, no matter how, um, how many obstacles you've had to to face Birmingham obviously you're one point on the board so Man City dropping points there I think there would have been massive questions asked Mm. and then if we're looking at the I suppose title race Champions League spots two good wins for Arsenal and Tottenham I'd say Arsenal were (laughs) thanking their lucky stars that they finally got a win I went to see them play Barcelona at the Emirates on Thursday and it was I mean it was incredible to watch Barcelona they were sensational but it's just it was like watching the FA Cup times two like the Arsenal yeah. just had no answer and obviously they were playing Leicester you know bottom team you wouldn't expect anything different from them but even just the mental side I suppose of like going through those two massive losses against two very good teams and I thought it was really interesting Jonas Edeville had it in his pre-match um like program comments or whatever he was talking about the fact that he had set up wrongly for the FA Cup. He was like, I've only been here for five months, not five years. I thought we were a lot further along in the journey than we clearly are. And I tried to bring the team to a place that they aren't ready for yet. We need to get our basics down before we try anything else, which I thought was really interesting from him. Quite refreshing from a manager to be that honest. Um, Often you get kind of generic answers about, oh, it wasn't our day. We didn't have the look of the green, but he... He looked at it. He said, we got it wrong. Um, and this was the perfect match for them to bounce back. I mean, I don't think it was ever in doubt that they were going to beat Leicester. Um, again, they were able to make some changes. Paris was really good. Iwabuchi and then obviously Manum came on for her. So they were able to kind of rest legs, get a really good result on the board and kind of just probably get back to basics. Like you say, they got back to winning ways. And now with those three points on the board, they can kind of bed in and work on those things um, for the the better opposition that they will be coming up against in in matches to come. Definitely. And with those results and with the knowledge that we are only like just before Christmas, do you think that Reading-Chelsea result is going to be probably one of the defining ones in the title race? Or can you see this Arsenal team also having a trip somewhere along the way? I can, but I can see Chelsea tripping up again. Um, I like the schedule isn't going to get all that much easier um, for either of them. So it's going to be how they manage it, how they learn from their mistakes. So it kind of is a, a battle of the minds between the two managers. Obviously, they're both different experience levels in the league. You'd, you'd kind of back Emma Hayes in that front. But with I'd never count out this Arsenal team. Obviously, they're sitting on top now. They're going to have a confidence boost going into Christmas. Um and they're good to watch. They're really good to watch. And a lot of people are backing them, obviously, particularly we have the Irish um, interest there. So I think a lot of Irish people have become Arsenal fans. It'll be, it's, it's just going to make for a really interesting title race. You just couldn't call it at this point. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to discussing more with you next week. Um, if you have any opinions, suggestions or thoughts on anything that Karen and I have discussed, please do get them into us on Twitter at Off The Ball using the hashtag O2BQuigig. Do you think Chelsea have tripped themselves up? Is this them done now in the title race? Or do you think Arsenal has a fall or two in them? And also, like, let us know how you thought the Reading team actually got on because obviously Grace Maloney there's some good Irish representation in there which we always love to see so at Off The Ball on Twitter using the hashtag OTB Koi Gig We gave her a week off and then we eased back into things with the Irish the all-time Irish WSL team that technically could kind of pick itself because we're still we're still building up to how many Irish players are in the WSL but we always love an opportunity to talk about some legends of the game but we're back this week with our WSL team of the week and we're back with Emma Carroll. Emma how are you? I'm good it was an interesting weekend. It was a fun one to like launch back into the WSL season with I think after the international break it's probably exactly what we needed to get the creative juices flowing. Yeah, yeah, sure. We started off with a bit of a shock, so it kind of probably shows in this week's team, I think. Yeah, how are you coping with this? I'll see people to put in 14 <laughs> positions. It's fine. I've just replaced them with Reading players. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <great. laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you give us your 11? So, um, In goal, we've got Grace Maloney. Um, kind of a bit of a three of back for, for Reading. Uh, Gemma Evans, Natasha Harding and Grace Maloney are all in there. Then Georgia Stanway at left back, Anna Patton at right back. Um, Borisa, Jordan Nobbs, and Vicky Lozada in the middle. And then Nikita Paris, Viv Miedema, and Deanna Rose is the three up front. Um, yeah. No Chelsea player. I know. That's a big one. I know. I'm going to jump. Probably was the closest yeah. one that came. She was. She was lively, you have to say, but it's hard to argue against putting any of those Reading defenders in there. I mean, they were absolutely outstanding. And on that, I think my first pick out, I'd actually have uh, a question over the goalkeeper, because I think that the defence did so well that her, her job was actually limited. She looked like she was busy, but a lot of the blocks were coming in from those defenders in front of her. And I'd, But I'm not going away from the Irish bias, because I actually think a big shout out to... Megan Walsh. I thought she was outstanding. I know that they lost 2-0 to Manchester United, but Man United bossed that game. They created a lot of chances and they could have been 4 or 5-0 up at halftime. I thought she was absolutely excellent. I did. After watching the Chelsea-Reading game, in my head, I was like, 100% Grace Maloney is going to be an Emma's team because of the Irish bias. <laughs> I still agree with the Irish bias. Listen, but... I've left Katie McCabe out this week. Louise Quinn came very close. She scored with her feet again. So, you know, she was probably... Well, I think it was going to take... It was going to take a 45-yard strike to to bump Katie off of her her (laughs) mainstay in that left-back position. But what a strike it was from Georgia Stanway. I mean, it gave Marie Horan no chance. I mean, like the audacity to even take on a strike from there is, is really outrageous so um, and it's she's well worth her selection that, yeah yeah it's another left back that's not even a, a left back again as well in Georgia Stanway um she's kind what, of been what is Georgia only... Stanway's position this season like she's uh-huh. kind of... it's a bit of an Aaron Cuthbert Katie McCabe situation where she'll play on the left play on the right win back go forward it wherever you tend to put her she seems to to perform so yeah she she kind of pipped uh, Katie 
McCabe this week, unfortunately. Um, I was just waiting for Katie to it's an assist from a corner or <laughs> yeah. something, and then I can keep you in. But um, yeah, I just I battled and I just couldn't find a reason to keep her in, yeah. in this week, unfortunately. The other Arsenal players were providing the assists. I think Nobbs, Paris, and Medem all assisted for each other in some way. Um Nobbs was really instrumental to a lot of their stuff that went on. But the name that sticks out to me in midfield is one that we probably haven't seen before is Boarisa. Um, and her performance for Man United, obviously, I just didn't know what to expect, but the runs she was making from deep, um, she was really ha- making the the defence at sixes and sevens with those late runs into the box. And they'd been depending on Russo and um, a few others, but she really stepped up to the plate. And I think she's definitely going to be one to watch if Man United are going to continue this game. Because that was a really big win for them against Brighton, because it's them, Brighton and Spurs all kind of going for that best of the rest, would we say? Yeah, I think she was definitely involved in most of the link-up play and she got her goal and she could have had definitely another one, if not two goals as well yeah. on the day. So she definitely... Um, yeah, it was a shootout between herself there. and, and me, Walsh I there. Know, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was for a while, wasn't it? Um, Vicky Lasada is one that I put in as well because she only played half an hour, but I just wanted to talk about her because I don't understand how she's not starting week in, week out for Manchester City. When you look at her, just her control, her touch, her link-up play. It's just, it's almost like it's a different class. Like you could just, a perfect Man City midfield for me would be Kira Walsh, Caroline Weir and Vicky Lozada. But we haven't got to see too much of that. Obviously, we know Kira Walsh has been injured and close contacts and COVID and everything has kind of kept her out for a while. But um, even so, she just still doesn't seem to get that start. And I don't know why, why Gary Taylor's not starting no more because she's it's a strange one she has that's what I mean she she has that Barcelona DNA and she she plays the game on kind of that different level to other people in terms of what she sees the passes the the space she can create maybe it's because they're looking for someone with legs just to cover their defensive frailties that have been there um obviously Lozada has been at Barcelona for a long time but when you have someone that intelligent I think you have to have them on the pitch because they, they can provide things that, that other players just can't. And she has that leadership quality as well that we kind of were questioning um, when they were leaking goals. So, yeah, you'd be expecting to see a lot more of her if, as the season goes on if, if Man City are going to um, start stepping up to the plate. Like you yeah. said there, Karen, that's why I was quite surprised. Like, OK, she might not have the legs, but she does have the intelligence. intelligence. Yeah. And But again, maybe it is the sort of thing where, like, she's played in that Barcelona team where they're like so in tune and everyone knows where the other's going to be. Like anytime, say when they played Arsenal on Thursday and an Arsenal player got the ball, there was three players on them immediately, which you just don't really have in that city mm. team. They don't have that same sort of press down. So I wonder what it is that Gareth Taylor is seeing in training sessions where he's like, I'm going to leave out the former captain of one of the best teams in the world. And even players like Kadisha Shaw, I'm always curious as to why she doesn't get more starts because she's incredible like top goal scorer from the year before but she seems to not really be making her way into this team and I don't know is it that Man City have just lost some sense of identity with all the injuries they've had and Taylor for some reason hasn't been able to put anything else on them yeah and they used to be such a a link-up play such a, a ball playing team and that's why you think that those players would be pivotal to that setup, but they haven't been doing that as well. It's a bit more disjointed. So maybe he's taking players, maybe he's going for a different approach, maybe a little bit more direct. Um, but there, there's gaps there, um, both in attack and defence. And those players that you mentioned, I think, could could really help plug them in a time where they are struggling. 
Mm. One player that I was like quite happy to see on this because I think she struggled a little bit since she came to Arsenal is Nikita Paris. Um, just having watched her against Barcelona, I mean, she wasn't playing in a forward position. No Arsenal player was. She was very much in the defence, but she really like she was the one player who I thought was really making like interesting runs in that game and it's nice to see her then have the opportunity to show that against say a team like Leicester where you expect Arsenal to win and win quite well compared to a Barcelona where it's damage control more than anything else um I actually got caught in an elevator with her on at the FA Cup at the weekend and she's so uh, I'm a small person and she's tiny she's so much smaller than me so when I saw her going up against those defenders I was very impressed um but yeah that was a name that I was quite glad to see although I was interested in the fact that there are quite a lot of Arsenal players in this team considering the week they had I know like we are looking at it particularly from the Leicester game. But I suppose in terms of what you would expect from Arsenal, you'd probably expect a lot of those players to perform well. Yeah, I think so. I think Anna Patton was, um, like, right up until that evening kickoff on Sunday night, it ha- probably had Aaron Cuthbert in that position. And then Anna Patton, I think, performed brilliantly. And she linked up brilliant with um, Nikita Paris as well on the overlaps. And, yeah, Nikita Paris didn't stop running all night. And how she didn't score, I will never know. Um, but she did get get on the assist sheet, so um, and yeah, Miedema as well. I, like, it's <laughs> I I don't know what more you can say about her, and but I'm also starting to get worried that we're not going to see her in the WSL next season. Just like I don't know how she starts on the bench against Barcelona. Surely, if you're thinking you get one chance, who's the player that you want that to fall to, and it has to be her. And yeah, I just. Yeah, I'm just going to keep enjoying Viv Miedema while I can at the moment. I did wonder, was she carrying some sort of knock or something? Because having watched like, the FA Cup match, her touch was not what it normally is. Like She would take one touch and the ball would go loose from her. And that wasn't just down to Chelsea pressing. And when the teams were warming up, like she didn't warm up with Arsenal ahead of the match or ahead of with all the other subs she came out quite late to the halftime warm up you know she was very much in full tracksuit Adabel said he was always going to start her at some stage during the match it was just like a tactical thing to do it in the second half but um, I was it was interesting because most people that I was talking to on the night pretty much were certain that she wasn't going to play because she wasn't with the team at the start of the game or anything it's not a game that you come on an impact. I mean, you don't come on and impact the game as a striker against Barcelona. If you, if you get a couple of chances, like you said, you want them to falter. And even if you're only going to get 20 minutes out of her, I think you get them in the first half and you see how the match goes. Then um, I think coming into a game like that is an impossible ask, even for the best striker in the world. Um, so, yeah, it's a strange call. Obviously, if she was holding something it maybe would have been better not to not to play her at all but if she was in any way fit I think she starts for me um and then you see how the game goes from there mm. yeah. yeah and then yet yeah, Diana Rose kind of rounds it up because she scores the winner and re- yeah. runs most of the pitch against Chelsea so <laughs> yeah what <laughs> a run she she's <laughs> such a strong runner um I think she showed flashes of that in previous games I think she was when Reading got their first win, I think she was heavily involved in a couple of goals there as well. She's such a strong runner with the ball. Um, so, yeah, she definitely deserves her place there because, I mean, for, Reading's first ever win, I think, was it against Chelsea? So yeah, to be the person on the score sheet against that, a bit of history for her. So she's worthy of her spot there, definitely. Yeah. And I know we said 
uh, I tweeted during the week that no matter if Sam Kerr did nothing, that would be in my team of the week for, <laughs> for her shoulder. Her yeah. But um, she really didn't do a lot on Saturday. She, so, uh, yeah, I think those three definitely got the nod ahead of her, unfortunately. Yeah, well, she'll be, she'll be on people's radar now for an all-star maybe in the future instead of team of the week. But uh, <laughs> no, it was yeah. very entertaining, to be fair. But no, the, the performance at the weekend didn't quite live up to that clip of her laying out your man but it was it was one of my highlights of the week anyway yeah definitely um thank you so much for joining us with another team of the week um if anyone listening has any thoughts or opinions someone that we've missed out do you think the likes of erin cuthbert should have been in the team i think she's performed very well recently she's been doing great things or even just to tell us which of the players that you enjoyed most watching please do get them onto us on twitter at off the ball uh, at the hashtag OTB Koi Gig. This week's guest on OTB Koi Gig podcast is Ireland Women's National Team Manager Vera Powell. Vera, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. Um, I suppose just to start into it, just to reflect a little bit on the qualifying campaign so far. Obviously, we have like a little bit of a break now and we come off a very big win against Georgia. How are you feeling heading into the new year? Well, that we're on track. We're one point ahead of Finland. Um, if you calculated the number of points that we both lost, um, and that is, well, that's what all we had aimed for. Um, it's a shame that we lost two points against Slovakia. Uh, because uh, then we would have had a, a clear a clear winner uh, in our pocket. But now we have a huge goal difference because of our 11-0 win against Georgia. Um, so we're one point ahead and we have a much better goal difference. So we're on track. That's good. On track is always where you want to be at this stage. Um, you talked a bit of after the game about like how you want to approach the qualifying games in the new year and maybe change it up to be a bit more attacking I think people would say generally this team has been more attack minded than those in the past but for you how do you see that working out in compared to how the team has been playing in the last couple of months well people say that we should play more attack minded but um, you have to deal with the qualities that you have against an opponent with their qualities and we need um, a back five or a back three if the white players are moving up. Um, because through our centre, we need to have backup. That is the qualities of our players that demands that, um, that style of play because that suits our players best. Um, and that means you, that you need to have an anchor in front of, the, uh, of that back five. Um, and the other players are... Um, uh, in front of that to attack. So um, what we're trying to do to with with the given that we need five in the back against Sweden, Finland, uh, and also Slovakia, um, is that we open uh, more cover to our wingers so that our wingers can go forward. Um, with the chance, if you do not squeeze um, uh, properly, uh, that you give so many spaces away. Um, it is a difficult um, tactical play, uh, but if you perform it, uh, your tasks well and you don't let your emotions take over and run out of those positions, then you're really, really strong. But we've seen against Slovakia in the goal against that our anchor in front of the defense and the, the defense three, the, the center backs, were moving to the right uh, further than the spine of the field. And that left a huge gap on the other side. 
um, they couldn't cover the space that Katie McCabe um, uh, left open because she was on her way forward. Uh, and that gave our goal against. So you have to be very precise in the tasks that you that you um, that you um, execute. Um, if we go, if we would go with four in the back, then we leave uh, spaces in the half spaces, so between the fullbacks and the centre backs. Um, and that's so when you were saying that you were thinking about playing more attack minded, were you more thinking about games like the Georgia one and like testing out players in that situation rather than games against Sweden? Because it was after it was after the Georgia game that you said there was like quotes that you were looking to maybe develop that side of the game more. Well, games we can see what we can do uh, for the forward to put our block for the forward. But if you play five in the back, you're always pushed back by mm-hmm. opponents that are stronger, that are ranked higher. And Sweden and Finland are ranked higher. Um, and our problem against Slovakia was especially the fight in midfield. Um, uh, somehow uh, we lost those fights and we're busy with analyzing and how we can back that up. Um, but even though we could have won against Slovakia and we could have lost against Slovakia. So it is, um, it's a bit uh, finding out in the little time that we have together, what is the best. And people think that we have a lot of time, but we have actually one and a half training session before each game uh, to find out what is the best balance and then the game itself. Um, and that stays vulnerable. So hopefully in February where there's a slot for more games, uh, um, there, all the teams were playing three friendly games and to, uh, to back that up too. Um, and then you can try out a few other things and, and see what the limits are from the other players. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason that other players in the pitch against Georgia was that we needed different style of players, not because the others didn't do well, but against Georgia, we needed a different style of players. Mm. You mentioned there about only having like one and a half training sessions prior to matches. And obviously, one of the things that has been talked about quite a lot in the last couple of months, I suppose, especially looking at Ireland as a team that's maybe transitioning from where we were to what we are now, which is a team that can say take it to teams like Australia and, you know, looking to increase professionalism in the league and stuff. Why? Is there so little time with the players together? Is it a case of scheduling? Is it a case that you would prefer more opportunities during the year to actually just bring players into a camp and have prolonged time with them? Yeah, most of our players are playing in the professional leagues. Um, Within the Irish League, the Women's National League, um, we have about eight or nine players and they come together at a home-based session before we actually go into camp but with the with the squad we have they come in on Sunday night or Monday morning uh, almost every player has played on Sunday night uh, so that means on Monday they have to do recovery um, and then on Tuesday they should have a day off even but if we play on Thursday we have to train uh, Tuesday Wednesday uh, those are very short training sessions the Tuesday is the most vulnerable day second day after the match so we can hardly do anything. And then on the Wednesday, we can hardly do anything because it's match day minus one and they cannot bring in fatigue into their game. Uh, so while they are recovering from the previous game, we have to be very careful of not getting injuries on the second day after that game. That's just Tuesday. And on the Wednesday, the match day minus one, we have hardly a session because we cannot load them on because we want to have them fresh for the game. If the game is on Friday, then we will have be off on Tuesday, no training on Tuesday. 
And then we, Wednesday, start up the motor. And then Thursday, we have then that's that little little session mm-hmm. again. So um, you cannot even say uh, that's two sessions, a session and a half to, yeah. to, to prepare. And with those home-based sessions, are those sessions that you attend prior to coming into the camp? Yes, of course. I'm, I'm always there. Yeah, I'm all, yep. always, uh, the whole staff is always there. And um, that is more to give the players a boost before they have to jump in the, the camp with the professional players who train every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so to sharpen up the, the players from the, from the Women's National League. And those home-based sessions, are, those are the only ones that take place during the year, I think, if I'm like, they're prior to the camps, but there aren't any kind of interspersed randomly if there isn't a camp involved or whatever. Do you think considering the level that the Women's National League is at and where I suppose we want it to go. We want it to become more professional. We want all that. Do you think that there should be more opportunities for, say, those players to even get themselves in front of you outside of matches and have those home-based sessions, get themselves up to speed, even if the players who are playing in professional leagues can't attend every single one because of those professional commitments? Well, those players are never at the home base session, so they are also out uh, the session before camp. Um, there's two sides on it. One, one is the financial side. Um, as everybody knows, the FAI is not um, the most richest uh, association at the moment. Um, so we need to deal with that part, but that, that is not an excuse. But there's an also another other side on it, is that the travel distances are huge. There's players, many players have to travel two and a half hours or three hours. And those sessions are during the week. So that means that after their uh, or after their school, they have to jump in the car two and a half hours to Abbottstown, having a session two and a half hours back. They will be back home at, at 12.30, 1 o'clock at night. And the next morning they have to go to school again. Um, you can do that once in so, so many weeks. Um, and that is why we do that uh, once before our camp. But if you do that every week, fatigue is building up and you will get injuries. So what we do is that all those players are training with boys instead, close by home, having the full resistance that they need. And that is why players like Savannah McCartney has come, has come in, um, uh, trains twice a week with boys. And her level jumped up and she got sharper and stronger and faster in her acting and, and became a, a very soon uh, a core player of our, our squad. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is the way we are dealing with that. They do train more, but with boys close by home. And then before the session, we bring them all in. Um, it's also kind of summon, but more to give them a boost to really, really be ready for the pressure that they will perceive in camp. You mentioned there about the distances that player ha- players have to travel. And Savannah is a great like example of that. She was on the Late Late Show the other week talking about the vast distances she travels every week to make sure that she can play football. And obviously having the opportunity to play with boys, I know you've talked about it quite a lot in the past and how much that has benefited players. But considering the differences in the games, would it not be beneficial to have, like, even if it's not every week, but I suppose a few more than there currently are where they're actually playing within the game and the style of the women's game compared to just solely relying on those boys' training sessions? Like, obviously, they can both supplement each other. It doesn't have to be a one or the other situation. Um, we have spoken about it, of course. Uh, we're constantly debating. 
Um, but fatigue, building up of fatigue is the is the, the, the enemy of female football players um, because they have to work, they go to school, and as soon as you build up fatigue, you cannot go out of that spot. Uh, and we're really, really careful with um, getting into that situation that they build fatigue. And building fatigue means that your nerve system um, becomes slower, that you have minor injuries in your muscles that do not heal. Um, and if you have no other uh, thing to do than uh, to just play, f- play football, then you can rest. Your nerve system is resting also, and you are fresh for the next uh, session. But if you have to travel so much, uh, if you go to your bed late, if you, you have to work all uh, and you get this overload on you, then it's a huge for major injuries. Um, and we've had one with Chloe Mustaki, unfortunately, and that was a clear example of what is happening if you build fatigue. Because she uh, was playing in London, and she's working all day, immediately to training back home at 11.30 even midnight, then out of her bed at 6.30, 7 o'clock, going to her work, going to training, and doing that throughout, it was back a month and a half, two months, and she was hoping that she could get through it till the end of the season. But there's a point that there's a moment that your nerve system is not fast enough, that you do not uh, contract your muscles at, at the uh, right moment, um, and then it just happens. It just happens. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the fact that we haven't had those injuries within uh, the Irish game uh, recently, over the last year and a half, two years, uh, I think that that is because we are so careful with this. Mm. And with, I suppose it's always been the kind of constant pull and tug in Irish football where we don't have a fully professional national team at like men's level or women's level it's we're constantly talking about it but for you what role is it that you see the women's national league playing in the development of the Irish squad I know you said when you first joined that if you don't develop those home-based players uh, alongside the professionals then you get a massive gap and there's no future for the game so what role do you see the league playing? Well, the league is developing, that's definitely. Uh, but the league is especially developing because all the energy of their coaches that's put in, uh, the facilities that the, the clubs are putting in, uh, the training moments that they can get there. Um, and on top of that, again, uh, training with boys. Uh, every play in the home base session is pushed to train with, uh, with boys. And you see that the ones who are training with boys, that they improve um, uh, immensely. And that helps also to, to improve the whole league. So uh, the more players train with boys, the better the league will be. Because in two times training a week, you cannot uh, expect from anyone that the league will jump up a level. But if all the players next to their club activities will train once or twice with boys, um, then the league will get immediately to another level. And why? when you're like how do you interact with the league like like I obviously you don't live in Ireland so how many games would you go to (coughs) in a season to actually watch the players that are there and that are developing yeah I see every game on the on the street because we have access to all the all the games um and before Eileen Gleeson, now Tom Elms uh, is the assistant who keeps track of all the players. So he's going 
every weekend to as many games as he can. Um, I'm in Ireland. I'm always visiting games. So uh, we do not feel that we don't have enough information because we know everything and we see everything. Mm. And your coach, though, that has always struck me as someone who likes having that sort of control. Do you not think that you miss out on things by not being around more often and actually seeing it in action compared to a stream where you know, a, a camera angle might miss something. You might not see someone's movement, might be just tracking a ball rather than all the work that's going on off camera. Yeah, but, but therefore, therefore I said, I don't bring an own assistant. I want an assistant who's, who's part of the league, who knows every player, who knows every coach, who knows every club, and who has the task to keep on, on, on those moments. Apart from that, I see everything. Um, and when I'm in Ireland, I try to press in everything that I can from the early morning to late at night. Uh, there's activities. Uh, so that what I usually do in three or four weeks, I do there in five days. And of course, there's only then three games in on the Saturday and the Sunday. Uh, that's the max I can get. And all the other games are seen by uh, Tom Elms. So I would see uh, the players' life um, maybe... Some player, some players two or three times every two slots. Other players one time every two slots. Uh, but Tom is seeing them all every week, um, and and that is enough. Uh, we know we know everything. We see the players. We see their developments. And uh, don't forget the, the streams are so valuable that we have. I've got more feeling that I miss the connection with the players abroad because visiting them is. Um, I, I need to go every. Um, they're spread out. They're in England, in Germany, in USA, uh, and that is the biggest challenge. Hmm. I suppose though, there is a thing with the in uh, with the professional players, the ones that are spread out. You know the level they are getting, and they are getting a, a lot more help. And if you're looking at the grassroots development and picking up like players who are maybe like 16, 17, 18, just coming through. Do you, would you not feel that that's more, that's more important to focus on than the ones who have already been picked up abroad? Um, I don't understand your question, that I should be more focusing on players in Ireland than the players abroad? As in, as in there's more there's more access to what the players abroad are doing there's more understanding of like the level that they have gone through because a lot of them have been in the system a long time whereas if you're looking at developing those home-based players and developing that side of things the Irish based is possibly more important in that regard uh, no no it's a national team it's top sport so it's about the best and we have Fantastic coaches um, uh, like James Scott, like Dave Conno, uh, like Tom Elms, who was the under 16, um, and um, Richie for the under 15. We have enough coaches who are constantly taking care of the development of the players. That is not my task. My task is taking care of the best um, and making sure that the best players get the best facilities. And that is what I'm, I'm, uh, I'm dealing with. Um, the, the youth development, uh, we have full-time coaches for that. And they are dedicated to it and they're highly professional and highly educated to do that. That doesn't mean that I, mm. I'm not part of it. We discuss everything. We discuss all the development of the players, but they are appointed to guide those players to the higher levels. 
And how would you describe your style of coaching? Like when you were, if you were to put yourself into a coaching characteristic, you know, you have so many different types for you. How would you describe your style of coaching? Oh, that's difficult because I relate my coaching to the ones in front of me. Um, For example, when I was coaching the Netherlands, I had to be very strict and with, um, with a team building process outside the pitch uh, because nobody saw us standing. Um, they were only looking for the negatives. Um, the players were purely amateurs when I uh, started coaching there. Uh, they, they called themselves top elite players with only training twice a week. Um, they um, had never gone to a final. So that was back then in 2004 a complete different style because i had to teach them what it is to be an elite player here the maturity much bigger so there's a lot more freedom for those players um, and they have a lot more um, they can bring in a lot more because their knowledge and their experience in the game is so much further than when i started in the netherlands um, and therefore, their opinion um, is um, related to more experience and more knowledge, so have more value to bring into the coaching. So I give a lot of space to players uh, and, of course, to staff um, to influence me uh, in the sense of what is good for this team, how do they feel, because they are the ones, the players are the ones who need to execute it. So if the players do not uh, feel and with arguments do not feel why um, why they not comfortable with something they were looking together in what is is suiting them and we always come up with a system that's most comfortable for the players and under mm. the resistance you, that we expect of course and did you find that that worked similarly with say your club experience obviously coaching at a international level is very different when you're dealing with players day in day out Um, no, that is not much different. No, no, that's not much different. When you play, when you deal with players day in, day out, um, then you're more dealing with ongoing, ongoing things that you have to create around a professional atmosphere. Um, then when you're in a, in a camp with a national team, you can organize that ahead. Um, so the expectations is probably a bit different. Mm. And Within that, but how in, do you in deal? Milan, um, exactly the same. And within that, how do you then deal with players who aren't, say, comfortable with that system or who are used to playing a different way? Um, it's not playing a different way. That is not the, uh, the thing. It's within our team, within the qualities that we have. Um, there's moments that we try out something because of an opponent with certain strength. Um, and we discussed that. And on the pitch, uh, for example, is Denise playing in front of the, the two in midfield or are they in line? And how how do they feel more comfortable in, for example, closing the wing staff? And we discussed that. We, we executed. And of course, at the end, the decision is uh, on our side. Um, but the players have to execute. So if you do things that the players not behind it, do not support then uh, you, you will not get a result. And the results is getting that in teamwork, you get to the point that um, with the knowledge that we have in our staff, 
um, that we put the things on the pitch and the dots on the eye we do together. Mm. And if there is like if there is a couple of players, I'll say within a squad that are like not clicking with you as a coach or not clicking with the systems, like how do you deal with that? Do you is it the sort of thing that you discuss in training? Do you pull those players aside? How do you reconcile that? That is, yeah, that's different. Um, we discuss with the core players always the strategy. Uh, we do that ahead. Uh, we're going to train. Um, and if players do not understand, we use video. Um, there's individual sessions. There's group sessions. There's um, line sessions, the spine sessions, uh, and within that, everybody is giving their opinion. So it's not the fact that players do not want or do not link, or that's not not an issue. The issue is how can we get to the point that we um, get the best out of our players against the opponents that we're facing. Well, Vera, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode. You're welcome. That's it for us on this week's Koi Gig Pod on OGB Sports in association with Cadbury FC, official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. Uh, thanks to Vera for her time, Karen earlier on for the discussions and also Emma for the team of the week. Karen and I will be back next Tuesday with more reaction and analysis to all the weekend's WSL action, along with another team of the week from Emma. And don't forget to get your thoughts and opinions into us on Twitter at Off the Ball using the hashtag OTB Koi Gig. Thanks and looking forward to seeing you all next week. The Koi Gig Pod and OTB Sports in association with Cadbury. A player and a half deserves a glass and a half of support.